we are going to look at the passage that we just heard read from the Gospel of Matthew. And as we turn our attention to this familiar story, I want to ask a question. Does your relationship with Jesus agitate you? Does your relationship with Jesus agitate you? Maybe you're here and you're not, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, but there's something about Jesus that is attracting you. There's something about Jesus that you're curious about and you're agitated by this Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're a child or you're a teenager and you're struggling, especially if you're a teenager, with, you know, what does God want from me? You know, why am I here? What am I going to do with my life? Um, and I think God has stuff about that to say, or he wants to direct me somehow, and, I, and you're agitated. Maybe you have known Jesus, you're an adult, and you've known Jesus, and followed Jesus, and walked with Jesus, and known about Jesus for decades. Does Jesus still agitate you? Is Jesus agitating you right now? And I think Matthew would say, I hope so. I hope so. As we look at the different Gospels, they all include the same ingredients, but they come off with a different accent. They come off with a different kind of grittiness and traction, with a different point. They're all rhetorical. They're written as rhetorical documents to, to gain a response, to compel us of certain things, to show us certain things about Jesus in order to get a certain response from us. And if you read, for instance, Luke's gospel, which contains the other birth narrative, you remember it's like these angels, and it's these angels that are blessing these shepherds, right? They're, they're blessing the whole world on God's behalf. Peace on earth and goodwill. Like, it's amazing. This whole chorus, this whole multitude of angels joins the original angel, and it's this like crazy concert of blessing. And then the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is ascending into heaven and he raises his hand and he blesses his disciples on behalf of God, the risen Jesus Christ, um, having received all this authority, blesses his disciples. And in the middle of the gospel, we see Jesus is revealed and, and we learn through that gospel especially that Jesus is here for everyone there's nobody too far away from God, from God to be brought in to Jesus. It's written to the whole world. It's written to, it's written, you know, it starts with Caesar Augustus. It doesn't start located in Jerusalem. It starts out with the whole world in view. And, and it ends that way. And then it goes into the book of Acts where the story finishes, going to the ends of the earth. And in Luke's gospel, we, we meet people that we don't meet anywhere else. We meet Zacchaeus, and we meet um, the prodigal son. We meet all these um, underdogs who are so far away, and we meet all these tax collectors and sinners. Luke uses that phrase over and over again, uniquely. And so there's this blessing that bookends this global invitation that whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can always be found by Jesus. Matthew's gospel is different. Matthew's gospel contains the same ingredients, but it's this concussive, the birth of Jesus is this concussive, agitating event that shakes political systems. It shakes everything and everyone. It shakes the whole world. 
And again, Matthew is presenting Jesus as this kind of T intersection. Like you can't just keep going through Jesus. Jesus is going to force you to either accept him or reject him. And just like all the other gospels, it pushes Jesus into our faces so that we have to deal with him. But Luke does it in a different way. There's conflict from the very beginning of Luke's gospel and throughout Luke's gospel. Luke wants us to be agitated by Jesus. Because Jesus, for Matthew, he's all about the authority of God. He is this king. Again, he's the king in all the gospels. I'm not trying, don't hear what I'm not saying. But in Matthew's gospel, it's way up in the mix, right? This is the thing that's so important for Matthew that we understand and grapple with and in some ways are offended by and have to conform to and wrestle with. It's not an easy thing for Matthew. And it's not an easy thing for you or for me. So as we open up this passage of Scripture, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus introduced this way. The birth of Jesus gets in our face, and, and the arrival of Jesus shakes up every authority. Think about it. It starts with this star, right? So the heavens are troubled by the birth of Jesus. The heavens don't take the birth of Jesus in stride. Something happens in the heavens that's strange. And somehow this weird thing happens in the heavens, among the heavenly bodies, that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Like, the heavens are troubled. There's this star. So whoever rules the stars and governs the planets and comets is manipulating the heavenly bodies in order to make a point about a particular baby who was just born here. And maybe it wasn't stars and maybe it wasn't planets and there's a lot of commentaries that say maybe it wasn't any of that at all. Maybe it was the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, just like we've seen in Exodus that hovered over the tabernacle and led the people of Israel when it was time for them to pack up and go to a different place and God would dwell over the spot where they were supposed to go and they would follow him and get to that spot and set up camp there and then that Shekinah glory would hover over the tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling. A lot of commentators say it's that, that the, the Magi are seeing and they're following and that, that Shekinah glory is hovering now over the spot where Jesus lay. It's not clear here in Matthew's gospel, but what is clear is that the heavens are troubled. The whole political system, as Jerusalem knows it, is troubled. Um, Herod the king, if you um, remember as um, Ashley read it, Herod the king, that phrase is used three times in a very short um, passage of scripture. Three times Herod is identified as Herod the king in verse 1, in verse 3, and in verse 9. The religious establishment and the whole city of Jerusalem is troubled. It says in, uh, later on, Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. They're troubled. The city of David is troubled. The city of the great King David, where Jesus is born, is troubled. Um, verses 12 through 20, nine verses or eight verses or so, uh, it, it talks about uh, all this trouble that Herod inflicts on this city where King David was born. People from across the world 
are troubled, these outsiders, um, these magi who live way far away from Jerusalem. They're not Jewish. They don't have anything to do with Judaism by anything that we know, but they see this star, and so the whole world is recognizing that something significant has happened here. So from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's calling the whole world to recognize Jesus. And then if you remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, uniquely, we get this great commission where Matthew says, now go out into all the world proclaiming Jesus and baptizing people in his name. Call them into submission and get their allegiance fixed into this person, Jesus, throughout all the world. So the whole world is troubled um, by the birth of this king. So there's a new king here, and all of creation and every institution and every person will have to deal with him. Every institution and every square inch of earth is agitated, is troubled by the king, Jesus, by his authority, by his rule. So the question for us today, if we're agitated, to the degree that you're agitated, Matthew would probably say, you're being agitated to worship Jesus. You're being agitated to give him something else. You're, you're being agitated to bend your knee and to offer him something else. And that vibration, that agitation, Matthew would say, I think, should always be there. Jesus says, you know, in one verse, if you're troubled and if you're weary and if you're tired and if you're burdened with all kinds of things, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and I'll give you rest. It's easy. But then not long after that, Jesus says something else. He says, if you want to be my disciple, every day you're going to have to take up that yoke. You're going to have to take up that cross and follow me. It's never just going to be a cakewalk. So it's easy, yes, but it's constant, yes. So I think if Matthew were here preaching this sermon, which we'd all be so much better off if he were, if Matthew were here preaching this sermon, I think he would encourage you to be agitated. Older adult, stay agitated. Teenager, get super agitated. Get close enough to Jesus. Talk to him enough to where he's calling forth things from you as acts of worship. So we see Jesus draws near to Herod, and Herod worships him a certain way. And he draws near to these magi, and they worship him a totally different way. And Matthew puts both of these options up before us so that we can evaluate them and decide, what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I doing with Jesus? So how does Herod worship? Let's look at that, and then we'll look at the magi, and then we'll think about how this might apply to us today. We see 15 of these 20 verses if you look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, that's really the whole scope of this birth narrative. That gets us from the Magi seeing the star to Jesus and Joseph and Mary, knowing that it's safe to return to um, the promised land from Egypt. So in these 20 verses, 15 of them, uh, Herod is probably the main character. You know, Herod is dominating 75% of this story. And he sees this new king, he hears of this new king, and immediately his conclusion, based on his fear and anxiety, is this new king will turn my world upside down. 
and, and this king will turn my world upside down in such a way that he's going to steal my life away. He's afraid of Jesus. And if I give in to Jesus, he's going to steal my life away. He's going to take away my fun, teenagers. He's going to take away my freedom. He's going to take away my ability to do what I want to do and be who I want to be and define myself on my own terms. If I yield to this Jesus person, I could lose it all. So no way am I doing that. No way is this new guy going to take over and have anything to say to me. I will not pay him tribute. I will do anything to protect myself and I'm going to figure out how to stay above him. I want to know where he is so that I, I want to identify him so I can see the whites of his eyes so I can stay above him in a place of authority. Wherever I find him, I will eliminate him. That's what he does, right? He seeks by the end of the story to make him disappear so that he can gather more power and stature for himself. If we're honest, like if we have a devil and an angel on our shoulder, if we have some good days and some bad days and some good weeks and some bad weeks and some good habits and some bad habits, if we drill into those things and we're honest, we all have a little Herod virus running in our blood, don't we? We're not immune to this. Jesus, I want to give you this, but I'm going to create a firewall and I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not ready to deal with this yet. Taken to its extreme, this garden path leads us to, it would just, the world would be a better place if Jesus had never come. The world would be a better place for me if I didn't have to worry about this guy. That's Herod. 15 verses out of 20. Matthew is demonstrating this Jesus person is not one to be taken in stride. This Jesus person is going to shake all of us up and he's going to bring to the surface things that we maybe otherwise wouldn't see. How do the Magi worship? Five verses. Verses 1 and 2, they're just the Magi, and then verses 9 through 11, if you've got your Bible, um, to check my math. Five verses on the Magi. They know from the moment that this star appears that this new king is a special gift to the whole world. And they don't know what he's going to do. They don't know anything about him. They just see this star. They see the heavens bend to tell, to announce the, the gift, the coming of this new king. And somehow they know this has something to do with me. Even though I live across the world, it's that special whatever they see. And they don't know how Jesus is going to turn their lives upside down. They don't know what Jesus is going to require of them. They don't know his name is Jesus. They just know that this king, this authority, has been sent here and has arrived here. And, and he's a gift to the whole world. And this king, they know, if you look at their story and think about their trip, the expense of it, the discomfort of it, the length of it, it's, a re it's like almost a reverse exodus. It's like the Gentiles are now coming to the promised land. It's a long trip. So it's clear to them that they, they, they know somewhere in their hearts that whoever this king is, whatever his reign is going to be like, 
He's worth my whole life. Pharaoh's thinking, Jesus is going to steal my life. The Magi are thinking, whatever he wants, he's worth it. Somehow they know that before they've even met him. And, and you can see from their story, we will do anything to find him. Wherever we find him, we will immediately yield to him and pay rich, costly tribute to him. So different than Pharaoh. Pharaoh will do anything to find him so that he can kill him. The Magi will do anything to find him so that they can throw themselves down on the ground and open up these ridiculously expensive treasures and and laud and honor and pour out their hearts and their treasure to this new king. Herod is bent on making him disappear and eliminating him. The Magi are bent on magnifying him so that he might shine upon them and spread his power through them to the world. So we see in Matthew's gospel this introduction of Jesus, a couple of things here that, that, that hang together that are beautiful and that play out through the whole book, through the whole gospel and culminate in that great commission that the heavens first arrange themselves around the birth of King Jesus. Somehow the heavens change to announce that this Jesus is here, this king is here and they arrange in conformity to announce this thing. And then we see throughout the book the whole earth and everyone in it will also conform to him somehow. It's like that line in the Lord's Prayer that we say so often that if you pray it thoughtfully, it's agitating. You know, after we um, say, hallowed be your name, and we kind of submit ourselves to him, and it's not my name that's hallowed, it's your name that's hallowed, it's not my kingdom that I want, it's your kingdom come. There are all these things that, are, that realign us, right, throughout that prayer. And then we get to this part where it says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's really what we see here. And there's something that happens in the heavens that's just immediate obedience to the birth of this king. And then we see an earth that's working its way out through conflict, through agitation, through confrontation. And we see this, this, this series of different things where people are seeing Jesus for who he is. And then, and then they're having to make these decisions. There's conflict. And, and then we see the consequences of those different decisions. But at the end of the story, when the veil is torn from top to bottom and the stone is rolled away, when, when Jesus finally has opened a way for, for all of us to come and pull up a chair and be at the table with God, the Father, and be at peace with him, we know that the wise men were right. That whatever they did to find this person and the sacrifices that they made to to see him and to worship him and, and to go back telling about him, spreading news about him, that they were wise. The fact is, for all of us, obeying Jesus Christ, the king, is always costly and it's always disruptive somehow. But it's always good and it's always wise. It's always the way of peace. It's always the way of forgiveness. It's always the way of restoration and real life. It's the way of real freedom, isn't it? Because we've tried it both ways. 
we've tasted the good of sacrificing for Jesus and following him and sacrificing for him. And we've tasted the goodness of that and we've seen the fruit of that. And we've also tasted the aftertaste and the bitterness of not doing that. Matthew here is calling us to remain in this state of agitation, not for the sake of the state of agitation, but to remain in a state of agitation by staying close enough to Jesus to kind of feel that vibration. What are you asking of me? What do you want of me? What can I offer you? Is there some evil thing that, that I need to lay off of that I need to offer you? Folks, if there's some, as we turn into a new year, if there's some pothole that you keep twisting your ankle in or something that you're stuck in that you're ashamed to talk about, please consider coming to talking and talking to Aubrey or talking to me. I, Aubrey knows, I think, just, he knows everything. He knows, all my, he knows all my stuff. I think I know all of Aubrey's stuff. We regularly are doing this, and it's so freeing. So if there's something that's troubling you, that's keeping you from um, worshiping God, that, that keeps you in that, under that cloak of shame or feeling like you're radioactive and you need to stay just far enough away until you cool down and then you can go closer to him, don't do that. That's not what he wants. He wants you to come close. And if you need to talk to someone, please come talk to someone. Maybe there's something to cast at his feet like these magi did. Maybe there's an offering that he's calling you to give, an offering of time. If you think about how the staggering amount of time that these magi offered to Jesus. Maybe it's some uh, material thing that he's calling for you to give. Maybe it's something as simple as anxiety, something that you're worried about, that you keep going back to. Peter says, um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, which is kind of what we see the Magi doing. And it's interesting, he modifies it. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then he says, how? Casting your cares on him, for he cares for you. And in due time, he will lift you up. So he tells us, here's a way to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up. Specifically, casting your cares on him, for he cares for you. So if there's an anxiety that's got you in its grip, teenagers, again, not to pick on you, but I have several and I was one. You're, you're, you're galloping toward this intersection, this busy intersection of the rest of your life, right? And there's all these different options and opportunities and, and fears and unknowns. Get on your knees. Get on your knees sometime. And say with your mouth, with the voice that's audible, Jesus, I want you to help me. Jesus, I'm worried about this. Jesus, help me know what to do. I want, I want the rest of my life to be fruitful and joyful. Help. I promise you, he will hear you and he will answer you. And in due time, he will lift you up. That's a way that you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That goes for all of us. Maybe there's something to forgive, something that you're carrying that you can offer to Jesus and say, I want to forgive as you've forgiven me. I want to forgive others their trespasses as you have forgiven me my trespasses. Get close enough to Jesus to ask. 
Get close enough to Jesus to be agitated by his reign and his rule over your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.